اعوذ باللہ من الشیطان الرجیم بسم اللہ الرحمن الرحیم ان صفا والمروت من شعائر اللہ فمن حج البیت اویتمرا فلا جناح علیہ ان یتوف بہما ومن یتوا ومن تتوا خیرن فعین اللہ شاکر علیم شرلی الصفا اشرلی الصفا and al-marwa are among the signs of Allah. It is therefore no sin for him who is on pilgrimage to the house or performs umrah to go round the two. And whoso does good beyond that, beyond what is obligatory, surely then Allah is appreciating, all-knowing. In commentary, Hazrat Khalifatul Masih al-Awwal explained that in this verse we are reminded of the sacrifice and the great patience that was shown by Hazrat Hajra at the times of the trial that she faced throughout her life. And when we do these different rites of pilgrimage, we are reminded of how Allah Ta'ala appreciated the fact that she was ready to give up everything for His sake. And at the end of this verse, we are told that these are not just rewards that are confined to Hazrat Hajra or to people in the past, but those who do similar actions will find Allah Almighty to be most appreciative and also the one who is the most knowing and observing of our actions. The words that are used here in this verse are وَمَنْ تَتَوَّعَ خَيْرًا That whoever does something of their own will and of their own happiness, then that is something better. And in commentary, Hazrat Muslim who explained that a person should not be trading with Allah Almighty. It is not something that is desirable. But as we've gone over before, what Allah Ta'ala wishes for us to do is submit. And so Allah Ta'ala has said that it is better that a person do whatever action they do, not with an expectation of reward or with conditions or as if they are bartering something with Allah Almighty, but rather out of complete willingness and happiness from within themselves. And for such people, Allah Ta'ala says that He is the appreciating and the all-knowing. In the next verse, Allah Almighty says, uh, that, was chapter, that was chapter 2, verse 159. The next verse is verse 160. إِنَّ الَّذِينَ يَكْتُمُونَ مَا أَنزَلْنَا مِنَ الْبَيِّنَاتِ وَالْهُدَىٰ مِنْ بَعْدِ مَا بَيَّنَّاهُ لِلنَّاسِ فِي الْكِتَابِ يُلَائِكَ يَلَنُهُمُ اللَّهُ أُولَائِكَ يَلَنُهُمُ اللَّهُ وَيَلَنُهُمُ اللَّائِنُونَ Those who conceal what we have sent down of signs and guidance after we have made it clear for the people in the book, it is these whom Allah curses, and so curse them, and, and so curse them those who curse. In commentary of this verse, Hazrat Muslim explained that the hypocrites of the time of the Holy Prophet would seek to hide what Allah Almighty taught in his teachings because of their fear of the displeasure that it would bring from the disbelievers. And so their fear of the disbelievers was greater than their fear of Allah Almighty. And this led them to feel inferior about the teachings that had been given to them. And they would seek to hide it because of their shame of those teachings. So here Allah Ta'ala says, that such people who do such are under the curse of Allah Almighty and of those who curse. This habit that is found among the hypocrites is something that is found wherever hypocrisy is found. Hazur explained that hypocrisy obviously did not exist at the time of the early period of Islam in Mecca. But then in the time of Medina, when the message of Islam had started to spread and there were material benefits in accepting Islam, then people began to accept Islam for materialistic reasons not for purely spiritual reasons, but for social and societal reasons. So when people accept Islam 
for worldly reasons, then it is inevitable that afterwards worldly considerations would have precedence in their heart. And these types of actions become problems that a Muslim community has to deal with. So that is what is described in this verse. And this is also something that is a point of understanding for us as Ahmadi Muslims living in our society as well. When a person presents Islam in a way where they conceal certain teachings of Islam out of a fear of disbelievers and out of a fear of the condemnation that may come from them, then that is, goes into the type of mudahinat which the Holy Qur'an has condemned, a type of compromising on principles. Now this, of course, does not go against wisdom. Hazur Ta'ala bin Asr al-Aziz has spoken about wisdom and preaching the message of Islam with wisdom, presenting its teachings in a way that show its beauties, and not presenting it in a way that unnecessarily causes a reaction and misunderstanding among people. So the teachings of Islam must always be presented with wisdom. The Holy Prophet ﷺ presented Islam with wisdom as well. We see many examples of it. But at the same time, we see that he had no fear whatsoever of any condemnation that he faced. No matter how unpopular a teaching was, he presented it without fear. So this is what our presentation should be as well. That when we present it with wisdom, we present it with wisdom. But there should never be any vestige of inferiority complex within our hearts about the teachings of Islam. And if that is the condition of our heart, then our presentation and our tabliq will be honest. But if there is a fear within our hearts of disbelievers and a fear of the teachings of Islam and how people may react to its truth, then as long as that exists within our hearts, then we may come under the general category of what is specifically described in this verse. Hazrat Masimaud explained one point in commentary of this verse of why it is that at times harsh language is used by himself, the promised Messiah and why it is used in the Holy Quran. This verse speaks of the disbelievers and the punishment that they will receive. That Allah curses them and curse them all those people who curse as well. Now Huzur explained that Many people in many societies, and especially in uh, Urdu language, in Pakistan, India, lanat is considered to be a type of profanity. People are offended by it, to say that lanat is upon a person. And so when Hazrat Masih used these words, and people were oftentimes offended as well. But Hazrat Masih explains that profanity and cursing and insults is only something that comes under a certain definition. It is when someone accuses someone falsely of something with the intention of hurting their feelings and attacking their sensitivities. That is what an insult is. An in definition of an insult is not just something that hurts someone, someone's feelings. If the definition of an insult was anything that hurts someone's feelings, then that means many of the truths that have to be said would all come under the category of insults that we are not permitted to say. If someone is offended by hearing an uncomfortable truth, then we are not to refrain from saying that truth. That is no standard of wisdom or that is no standard of politeness. If a truth is uncomfortable, then it must be said. Now this is a standard that we apply not only to ourselves but to others as well. When we request others who we debate with, that we be civil in our debates. In that situation, we don't say that you cannot criticize us or you cannot criticize the Holy Prophet Muhammad We simply say that you must not be profane and you must not insult in that regard. You must not use profanity. Attack the religion of Islam with your objections if you wish, but be civil along the way. So this is a standard that we expect from ourselves and we expect from others. It is ignorance on the part of 
some people who are extremists who say that no person has any right to criticize Islam or the Holy Prophet If a person has honest criticisms and they should share it, it is intellectual honesty. It would be wrong for us to prevent them from saying it or for us to be offended by someone's criticism of the Holy Prophet if they are being civil and honest in that approach. Because this is how misunderstandings are removed. So as Masih said that when a person does something that is deserving of the curse of Allah Almighty, then Allah Ta'ala Himself says that the curse of Allah Almighty is upon them, that the lanat of Allah Ta'ala is upon them. And if a person is offended by it, then that is his own problem. We are not saying it to insult them, we are not saying it to hurt their feelings, we are saying it because it is a reality that has to be expressed. And if they don't believe in Allah Ta'ala, they shouldn't be offended by it at all. And if they consider us to be false, then also they should not be offended at all. If a Christian tells me that I am under the curse of Allah Almighty because I have rejected Jesus, what reason do I have to be offended by it? It is their sincere belief and I can understand why they would hold that belief. But it doesn't make any difference to me because that doesn't mean that I am cursed. If I understand that Islam is true, then I understand that they have a sincere misunderstanding in that regard. So there's no reason for anyone to be offended by these points. So when the Holy Qur'an uses language which people consider to be harsh, when Hazrat Masih used such language, when we find such language in a hadith, then it is an expression of fact, which is said from the perspective of communicating an important point and message, and never with the intention, even implied, to insult someone or to hurt their feelings or to make a mockery. Mockery is what is behind an insult and that is what is forbidden. And so when people make accusations against Hazrat Masih then we can point out verses like this, where Allah Ta'ala has used the similar figure of speech. And also we see in the next verse that comes after this that إِنَّ الَّذِينَ كَفَرُوا وَمَاتُوا وَهُمْ كُفَّارٌ أُولَائِكَ عَلَيْهِمْ لَانَةُ اللَّهِ وَالْمَلَائِكَةِ وَالنَّاسِ أَجْمَعِينَ Those who disbelieve and die while they are disbelievers, on them shall be the lanat of Allah Ta'ala, the curse of Allah Almighty, and of angels and of men altogether. Now in this verse, those who disbelieve are described as being under the lanat of all these categories. If somebody considers lanat to be a profanity, then what are they going to do with this verse of the Holy Qur'an when they make such accusations against Hazrat Masih Here it says that such people come under the lanat of not only Allah Almighty, but the angels and all of the believers and all people together. Not even believers, it says, nasi ajma'i and all people together. We'll cover that verse in a moment. But the next verse after this is verse 161. wa aslahu. And they who repent and amend and openly declare the truth, it is these to whom I turn with forgiveness, and I am off returning with compassion and merciful. In commentary of this verse, Hazrat Muslim one who explained that there are different stages of repentance, and understanding those stages is the only way that a person can truly repent. Some people raise the objection against religion out of foolishness that if a person can repent for their sins, then why doesn't a person just live their whole life sinning and then just repent and have everything forgiven? But that ignores the true concept of repentance which is described in this verse. Hazur says that true repentance in the sight of Allah Almighty is that a person genuinely look within their heart upon that action as being regrettable, as being reprehensible. And also that they verbally apologize for it as well. If they have harmed someone, then they apologize to that person for having harmed them. They do toba and they verbally affirm that they will, not cons- they, they will not do that action again. And the third is that it be followed up with action, that they cease from doing that action. The next time they approach that action, before they do it, they turn back and they turn back before having actually carried out that action. So this is true toba. 
A person who does Toba according to the description of Islam, it is not possible that this concept of repentance would ever cause a person to go towards sin. Wrong concepts of Toba where people think that if I just read this one namaz and all my sins will be forgiven, if I just do this hajj, everything will be reset to zero and so on and so forth. Those are things that motivate a person to sin. Because then a person naturally thinks that if all my sins can be reset after doing this one action, then why not just do every sin that I can think of right before I doing that hajj or doing that prayer or doing that whatever and then I'll be good to go after that. That's not true Toba according to the Holy Quran. Toba according to the Holy Quran which here is described can never motivate a person to do more sin. Now this is something that we can use as motivation for us during this month of Ramadan as well. In the month of Ramadan especially we should think of something that we wish to repent from, that we wish to change within ourselves. And so there, there has to be a reflection. First, what is there something that we find reprehensible as an action? Then secondly, to repent verbally from it, not just to repent in front of Allah Ta'ala, but if that thing applies to a human being as well, to apologize to that person who we have done that action to. And then say that we intend to never do it again and we have done this tawbah and this intention during the month of Ramadan with the hope of reformation. And then to strive afterwards with action to refrain from doing that again. So Toba in the month of Ramadan and making this intention is something that can make this Ramadan a source of practical benefit for us as individuals. The next verse after this is verse 162. Those who disbelieve and die while they are disbelievers, on them shall be the curse of Allah and of angels and of men altogether. Now, in commentary of this verse of the Holy Quran, Hazrat Muslim one who explained that Allah Ta'ala describes here that such disbelievers don't just come under the curse and the lanat of Allah Almighty, but of the end of the angels. But interestingly, also of Anasi Ajma'in, of all people together. And this shows that in the hereafter, sin and goodness will become so apparent to us from the pure nature that we are given that we will naturally curse the action of disbelief in those who are disbelievers. Even those who are disbelievers who come under the broad definition of annas will be among those who curse disbelief and curse those who are disbelievers. So the words that are used, annas is something that gives us insight into human nature. If the words were used here, al-mu'minun, then it would have been different. Then it would have been clear that of course the believers are going to curse the disbelievers in the hereafter, they do so in this world. But annas do not curse the disbelievers in this world. Many times the people the general masses, they praise the disbelievers in this world. What would make them curse the disbelievers? Huzur describes, because in all of our fitrat, there is an aversion to disbelief and to the actions of disbelievers, to going against the commandments of Allah Ta'ala and the nature that Allah Ta'ala has given us. And that nature sends curses upon this action and shows an aversion to it, which manifests itself in the spiritual form clearly in the hereafter, when they will send lanat upon those who disbelieved. Now, Hazrat Muslim who also explained an aspect of this fitrat, of how everybody looks at sin as being a negative thing. We always curse those who do something that is wrong. Even a murderer would curse a person who were to commit murder against his family member, or a thief would curse that thief who were to commit theft against him. The greatest liar would be offended if a person lied to him. This shows that everybody's fitrat tells them that sinful things are lies. These are consistent things that are found in our nature. But when people justify sins, they do so by changing the parameters of that sin. 
Nobody can ever change the fact that murder is wrong. Unless somebody has a psychological illness, murder is murder, theft is theft, lying is lying. No matter how evil a person is, they understand that these things are wrong. But when people do evil things and when they change morality in their minds, they only change the circle of people who these sins apply to. That is the extent to which we can change sinful behavior and to the extent to which we can rationalize something. That is the furthest that we can deviate from our fitrat. Now as an extreme example, when we look for example at the Nazis, they justified murder and you would think that they had changed their fitrat. Now murder is okay to somebody who is a Nazi. But they didn't change the definition of murder. Their fitrat was still there that Allah Ta'ala gave them. The only thing that they changed was its circle of application. They said that murder doesn't apply to Jews. You can kill them. You can kill people who are of an inferior race. But still, if somebody within their own society murdered, they considered that an extremely wrong thing. For a person of the Aryan race to kill somebody else, that was the greatest crime that needed to be punished immediately. Within their own society, they had the highest level of discipline. In fact, when the Nazis were ruling over France and in Paris, they were so strict in the maintaining of discipline that people were not even allowed to smoke and to litter their you know, cigarette butts in public. They had a higher, Occupy Paris had a higher level of discipline as far as society, rules of society goes than the discipline that was there once the Americans retook it. So they understood morality, they understood points, but they just reapplied the rules. When a person steals and robs, take ISIS for example, they consider it fine to murder and to rob and to steal from people. But they consider it extremely wrong internally to steal from each other because they consider it to be a wrong thing. It is a crime. Lying as well. A person justifies that I can lie to this person, but I won't lie to that person. So whenever we do a sin, we never change the definition of sin. We just change the circle of people to whom that sin applies. A person who we consider to be a human being like we are, we don't sin against them because we don't like to be sinned against ourselves. But when we don't consider a person to be a human being in the same way that we believe we are a human being, then we consider it okay to sin against them. I don't like someone to steal from me, but it's okay to steal from that person because he doesn't feel pain in the same way I do. That's how we justify it in our minds. So when we consider a person outside of that golden rule that this person is not like me, then we justify the doing of sins towards that person. So this is the way in which justification and rationalization happens. So if we wish to abstain from sin, we have to diagnose it from that perspective as well. We don't need to convince ourselves that lying is a sin. If a person, God forbid, has, the, have, has a fault of committing libat against people, of backbiting against people, of lying to people, and so on and so forth, we don't really need to convince ourselves that lying is bad because we know it. We know libat is bad. What we need to do is understand where our circle of humanity is. Because the people who we think it is okay to lie to are outside of our circle of humanity. And we have to ask ourselves, why do we consider them outside of that circle? We would not justify lying to them if we actually considered them to be like our own. The same thing applies with ghibat. The same thing applies with theft and murder. We consider that person outside the circle of the true humanity, that the definition that we apply to ourselves. This is how sin is justified. Now another point that is important to remember here as well is that many times... This is how we can see the deterioration in a relationship, in marriage relationships. When a person starts committing ghibat against his own wife or her own husband, there we see a huge deterioration in that relationship. We recognize that ghibat is wrong. We cannot tolerate ghibat and insults against our own family members. Imagine if someone were to insult our mother and we just laughed along with them and we even added an insult of our own to it. Only the most begheret and self person lacking self-respect would ever do something like that. 
In the same way, if somebody insulted our wife and we added an insult to it, it seems like the height of disrespect to ourselves and the lack of self-respect, but people do this. Many times when a corrosion happens in a marriage relationship, people have no problem openly criticizing their wife or their husband, going among their friends and insulting her and insulting him, committing ghibat against them, insulting them and being completely fine if their friends insult their husband or their wife as well. This shows that there is a lack of self-respect in that individual and also that they have completely lost respect for their spouse because now they no longer consider that individual within that circle of humanity that they include in themselves and they say it's okay to commit ghibat against that person, to lie to that person and so on and so forth. So when a behavior deteriorates to this position, then it is an indication of a deterioration within that marriage and within that relationship. So a person who is in a healthy relationship has pride and self-respect for that person and seeks to defend that person. So when Allah Ta'ala says in this verse of the Holy Quran that that upon them is the curse of Allah Almighty and the angels and of all people together, it means one of the meanings is that we all universally recognize that sin is bad. And it is a, a, a feeling and a truth and a light that comes from within our fitrat. There is no need for us to convince ourselves of that. The only thing that we need to understand is the circle of people that it applies to. When we do something that is reprehensible, that our fitrat says that lanat be on this action that I am doing right now. The only reason another part of our mind justifies it to our fitrat is by saying that it's okay, this person deserves it. They are not feeling people like me, and they do not deserve the same respect that I extend to myself. So when we analyze ourselves, we must analyze these lines, identify these lines of humanity that we have within our minds, and then from there address our human behavior to others when it comes to reforming ourselves in our hukuku libad and in the way that we treat our fellow beings. So now if there's any questions on what we've covered, then you can feel free to ask. <coughs> Uh, one question is that why do we remove part of the verse whosoever kills a person it is it's as if he killed mankind in our literature I don't understand why do we remove part oh I see what you mean um, this verse whosoever kills a person it is as if he has killed all of our mankind all of mankind what this verse teaches is that the beginning of that verse is that Allah Ta'ala has already commanded the Jewish people from ahead of time the people of the book a principle which is that whoever kills a person, it is as if he has killed all of mankind. Now, why is it that we don't quote the entirety of the verse? There are two perspectives on this. There are two reasons that a person could do this. One is for brevity, that when you quote something, especially for, you know, in short pamphlets and in our literature, which is meant to concisely give the message of Islam, then you quote the part of the verse that is relevant. But the other question that sometimes arises is that are we misleading people? This verse of the Holy Quran is not teaching something for the Muslims, but it is teaching something for the people of the book. And so when we present this verse in this way, are we saying that this is a Jewish teaching, that we cut that part out, so hoping that people don't actually look into this verse so that we can present it in that way? Now, if the second was our intention and we actually meant to mislead people, then it would be very short-sighted on our part. I mean, how foolish would it be for any community to put something out in all of their literature when all a person has to do is look up that verse and just read it? It's not even about reading the verse before it and after it. It's just about reading the verse itself. So to think that intentionally something was done to mislead people also implies that the person who intended to mislead people was the most short-sighted and foolish individual that we can imagine. 
the reality is that throughout the Holy Quran, when verses and teachings are given even to the people of the book, then those teachings which the Holy Quran has not replaced or has not abrogated for whatever reason, those teachings continue within Islam because the Holy Quran has recognized their true origins. In fact, the Holy Prophet ﷺ continued his practice and his actions of the teachings of the people of the book until it was abrogated, until it was changed. So those teachings of the Bible which are changed or are confirmed or are perfected, those are teachings which carry forward in Islam. That is why the Holy Quran says that we do not can replace a teaching or cause it to be forgotten, but that we bring a better teaching or we replace it with a new teaching in its place. So the teachings of the Holy Quran, they bring new teachings from the teachings that were forgotten before. That's one category. They perfect the faulty teachings that existed before. And thirdly, they confirm the previous teachings that already existed. So this is one of those categories that Allah Ta'ala says that this is a teaching which is confirmed in the Holy Quran. That is the reason why it is put in the Holy Quran in the first place. There was no other reason for it to be in the Quran. Allah Ta'ala teaches that this is a teaching which Allah Ta'ala confirms from the previous people that Allah Ta'ala has already taught them. This principle that whoever kills a person, it is as if he has killed all of mankind. Another question is that why was the repentance of Pharaoh was not accepted by Allah? Was it due to him being close to death? The answer to that question is yes. There's a verse of the Holy Quran, I don't have it offhand, but it essentially says that Allah Ta'ala says that Tawbah is accepted up until a person reaches the pains of death. When a person enters that point where there is no turning back, when a person reaches the pains of death and they know that death is now inevitable, then a person who repents at that point, their repentance is not accepted. Now here in the situation of Pharaoh, he had not actually reached that point because he survived physically. So he was not really at that point of absolute pangs of death. But still, he had reached a point where he only repented because he thought that he was in those pangs of death. And so that is why his toba was not truly sincere as far as this definition of the uh, teachings that Allah Ta'ala has given and he's established as a principle. So for this reason, his repentance was accepted to a degree out of the sheer mercy of Allah Ta'ala. But it was not accepted fully, be fully because of the um, lack of sincerity in it. Now also, just as a side note, even if he had not been in the pangs of death, even if he had repented beforehand, Allah Ta'ala is not obligated to accept anyone's repentance. Allah Ta'ala knows the sincerity with which a person does it. Even if he had been just sitting in his palace comfortably and he said, you know what, I decide that I repent and I accept the God of Moses and the God of Harun, Hazrat Harun salam. Even then, Allah Ta'ala knows his heart and Allah Ta'ala could have rejected that repentance. So it is only for Allah Ta'ala to judge. But in this particular verse, yes, it is according to that principle of the Holy Quran that repentance is accepted up until a person reaches the pains of death. Then after that, a person's fate is sealed and the ink is dried. So with that, we'll end the dars and we'll inshallah continue tomorrow. Allahumma salli ala Muhammadin wa ala Ali Muhammad wa barik wa sallim inna ka hamidun majeed.